and palatial ultimate sports talk.com radio studios good evening everyone welcome to the ultimate sports talk show i am dave mitchell glad to have you along this morning our weekly thursday get together for the next 60 minutes to talk about what has happened in the world of sports over the past week so good to have you along here this evening we have got a ton of things to talk to but first don't forget you can join us on our chat room at ultimatesportstalk.com and tell us what's happening uh, in your neck of the woods as far as sports is concerned. You can also send us a tweet at OHBB co-host or send us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. We've got Greg Mitchell stopping by near the bottom of the hour to talk about the loss of one of the gigantic icons in the world of professional wrestling. We're also going to be talking about the Alex Mack signing. Major League Baseball, and the historic event that happened 40 years ago that changed the way we look at baseball today. And, of course, we're also going to take a look at college athletics. But first... other story to open tonight's show with? I don't think so. And without a doubt, after Monday and Tuesday night, you cannot say that there is another state, another school in this country that is now the top of the college basketball world other than the state of Connecticut. Not Michigan, not Kentucky, not even Louisville, Kentucky, not North Carolina, not California, Washington, Wyoming, North Texas, or wherever in the world the Dallas Cowboys Stadium actually is, according to CBS. And anywhere else in the country cannot say they are the top of the basketball world. But now, after this week, the king and queen of the college basketball kingdom are the Connecticut Huskies and the ladies Huskies. Nobody can dispute it. Nobody can argue it. Nobody can cajole or even make fun of what happened earlier this week. First of all, Shabazz Napier scored 22 points for the Connecticut men's basketball team as they won their second NCAA title in four years, beating all the Kentucky freshmen 60-54 to in the championship game Monday night in North Texas or Dallas or Arlington, wherever CBS wants to tell you the championship game was at. A year ago, Connecticut wasn't even eligible to compete in the NCAA tournament. It was the Connecticut Huskies' fourth national championship in just five Final Four appearances. And this impressive run capped off the career of star guard Shabazz Napier and marked the arrival of second-year head coach Kevin Ollie, a career NBA journeyman who took over as an assistant under former coach Jim Calhoun just four years ago. Now, does this make... Connecticut, a historically great program, I think it does. I think Connecticut has got to go down as one of the major dynasties ever in college basketball. And their coach, Kevin Ollie, says the Huskies weren't wearing the glass slipper as many people said they were going into the Final Four this past weekend, that the entire Huskies team said this was expected. Somebody told me we were Cinderella. And I was like, no, we UConn. I mean, this is this is what we do. Um we we born for this. Um, we bred it to 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 cut down nets. Um, and like I told you, we're not chasing championships. Championships chasing us. And we got four now. And, and and Coach Calhoun started a tradition. And my whole coaching staff is from UConn. We all been through the same things. And we love this university. Um, we put this university first. It's always family first with us. And they kept believing. And I told you. I mean, a lot of people was picking against us. And and doubting us, but I told you the last would be the first. And we first... Over 20 years ago, Jim Calhoun took over a Connecticut basketball program that was one of the worst in the country. And in less than a decade, he had them into the NCAA tournament for the first time and winning their first NCAA college basketball championship. Kevin Alley is continuing that tradition at Connecticut. And Napier is now among three UConn seniors who were part of the Huskies' 2011 title. That was the last one that Jim Calhoun coached. That trio stayed 
after Calhoun's retirement. Even when the Huskies were ineligible for the NCAA tournament last year, they came back strong in Kevin Ollie's second season, and the Huskies finished 32-8 and this year, went all the way to their fourth overall title. Kentucky, 29-11, and with five freshman starters, never led in the game against Connecticut. The Wildcats missed 11 of 24 free throws, while the Huskies, they did this all tournament long. They hit their free throws. They were perfect on 10 tries. The thing that made Connecticut tough was they had three guys who could shoot from the outside, one dominant player down low, two guards that could handle the ball. You couldn't press them, and you couldn't foul them because they would hit their free throws. 90 minutes before UConn's women's basketball team tipped off against Notre Dame for the national championship in Nashville Tuesday night, Napier, who was named the most outstanding player in the men's title game, idled by his home locker room inside the Gampel Pavilion. He stood by a poster board emblazoned with the message, Be Phenomenal or Be Forgotten. And his name was then announced at the pep rally. Napier made his way through the doorway under a sign that read, Ten Toes In, and pumped his fist at the crowd. Moments later, as he stood on stage with teammates and looked across the stands, his mother, Carmen Velasquez, stood with Jonathan, the Huskies' mascot. Now the crowd erupted, and Napier looked confused because he did not expect his mother to be in attendance. She then pulled a string, and a cloth cover fell down to uh, reveal Napier's surname and the number 13 already in place alongside former UConn point guard Khalid Alamine and others in the UConn Huskies of honor. His eyes began to fill with tears. And Napier's number will soon have a lot of company because then, later that night, the UConn women leveled the Irish 79-58, a thousand miles south of Storrs, and set off another night of revelry back on campus. They did it in their own way, with the interior dominance of forward Brianna Stewart and Stephanie Dolson, prevailing in the first championship game featuring undefeated teams. The Huskies finished 40-0, and and they attacked the Irish at 37-1 and on the baseline, as well as on the fast break, extending their long arms to collect rebounds and block the shots by the Lady Fighting Irish. For Dolson, a Napier classmate who scored 17 points, It was a tear-filled moment to close out her career with the second national title. It was also, get this, the second time that the Connecticut Huskies have won the national championship in both men's and women's basketball in the same year, repeating the feat that they did first in 2004. It's now nine national titles the Lady Huskies have won, and Gino Oriema, talks about the Connecticut win and the women's dynasty he has created in Connecticut. There really isn't much that uh, that you can say when we have a performance like that where um, your players are just really locked into what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. It was just an incredible effort by uh, the entire team. And, um, you know, there's it's been a lot of great moments at Connecticut and a lot of great moments in our NCAA history, but um, and especially for our two seniors and the way these guys played, I couldn't be, couldn't be prouder of a group of players than I am right now. UConn fans stayed inside the arena past 11 p.m. Tuesday after the Connecticut women won. Chanting and cheering, we are the champions, played on the loudspeaker and echoed through the tight hallways lined up with photos of Huskies title winners from the past. So now... Questions will arise both for the men of Connecticut and the women of Connecticut. What's Kevin Ollie's future? Could the NBA be knocking at the door for this second-year Connecticut head coach, and could he entertain an offer to go to the pros? Frankly, I don't think it will happen because of the fight that Jim Calhoun put forward to get Kevin Ollie named his successor two years ago. I think Kevin Ollie feels he owes it not only to to Connecticut, but also to Jim Calhoun to stay with the Huskies for a few more years. What about John Calipari, the head coach of Kentucky, the losing team to Connecticut on Monday night? There are several rumors being bandied about that he could be the next coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. But many people remember that when he took the job with the New Jersey Nets, now the Brooklyn Nets, about a decade ago, 
when he left Massachusetts. That was a total failure by Calipari, and he ended up leaving after two years, going to Memphis, and then began his system, I guess you could call it, of college basketball, of bringing in freshmen just year after year after year. So what will John Calipari do? I think this Lakers job rumor has some legs on it. I think the lure of the Laker position is just one that would bring Calipari out of college and back to the pros. After all, he's really followed in the footsteps of Rick Pitino. And Pitino did it twice. He did it with the Knicks first, then came back to college, then went back to Boston, and then came back to college. I could see Calipari doing the same thing. What about the women's side, though? That became became really a catfight over the weekend between Notre Dame coach Muffet McGraw and Connecticut coach Gino Oriema. McGraw made comments before the title game saying that Notre Dame actually hates and says that Connecticut lacks civility, and that would be fair ways to describe her team's rivalry with Connecticut. See, both teams were in the Big East Conference up until this year, and then Notre Dame left and went to the ACC, but Connecticut stayed in the Big East Conference. Each in a different conference now. McGraw said Oriema rebuffed the Notre Dame efforts to schedule a meeting this season, and Oriema responded by saying, let me just say it's not nice to fib during Lent. And McGraw's action, I try not to get down to his level. It's obvious McGraw and Oriema don't like each other. And when you ask McGraw about her relationship with Oriema, she says, we don't have a relationship. McGraw even marveled that a very physical Connecticut team that has been called for fewer fouls this year than any Division I team, and that meant that Oriema had to shot, shoot something back at her. And he said the only thing that was more amazing was how many free throws Notre Dame shot against his team during the last three seasons if they were so physical. Nonetheless, when you look at these two schools, Notre Dame and Connecticut, Connecticut by far, and I think Doris Burke made the proper comparison during the championship game on Tuesday night. She said there is obviously a big difference between the top two college basketball teams and women's, the women's game now and the rest of the teams. But there is an even more tremendous difference between number one, Connecticut, and number two, Notre Dame. And as far as the men are concerned, Connecticut, the head of the men's basketball tournament after this year. By the way, nobody won the Quicken Loans uh, billion-dollar bracket challenge. Nobody won it. Let's move on in college basketball, and I really hate to bring up this story. This is not a good story to be reporting. Adrian Payne brought her onto the floor for his senior night ceremony after the final home game at Michigan State. You've heard about this girl. She was there in Indianapolis when Payne cut down the nets for the Big Ten Championship. In New York as the Spartans' NCAA title dreams came to a crushing end, and then in Dallas last week when Payne competed in the dunk contest. Lacey Holsworth, Princess Lacey, as she became affectionately known, passed away Wednesday an Instagram message posted Wednesday morning by her family. Princess Lacey has achieved the ultimate victory, the message read. She now dances among the angels, and the world is a better place because she was in it. Lacey was an eight-year-old cancer patient, and she touched the hearts of basketball fans around the nation during March Madness with her story. She first met Payne a couple of years ago when the Michigan State basketball team was making the rounds during a hospital visit. They became very close friends. He called her his little sis, which she referred to him as Superman. Her passion for life was admired by those who met her, read about her, and heard about her. Jay Billis, who's the college basketball analyst for ESPN, whose commentary I respect probably more than anybody else in college basketball, has more than 67,000 followers on Twitter, but he follows only one. And that was the account of Lacey Holdsworth. Billis tweeted Wednesday morning, 
Rest in peace, Lacey Holdsworth, a beautiful soul whose strength and courage touched and inspired us all. Heartbreaking. Michigan State coach Tom Izzo released a statement via Instagram on behalf of the MSU basketball program saying, Princess Lacey taught us all an incredible lesson about love, strength, and toughness. We can all learn from her on how to handle adversity with class and dignity. She became an inspiration to the Michigan State team, their families, our university, and most recently, our entire nation. At just eight years old, she has given us a lifetime of memories, and we are all saddened today, but we are all better for people for having known Lacey. Her smile and her passion for life will live in the hearts of everyone she has touched around the country. Lacey is survived by her father, Matt, her mother, Heather, brothers William, Mitchell, and Luke, and of course, her Superman. And a memorial service for Lacey has been scheduled for April 17th at the Breslin Center on the campus of Michigan State University, her father told the AP. More details will be announced later. Such a happy moment for Connecticut and such a down period for the Michigan State basketball team. Lacey Holdsworth, our condolences go out to her parents. Elsewhere in college basketball, former UNLV basketball coach Jerry Tarkanian has been admitted to a Las Vegas hospital after relatives say he was feeling weak and having trouble breathing yesterday. Tarkanian's son, Danny Tarkanian, says his 83-year-old father was also struggling to keep his eyes open when he was taking the Valley Hospital on Wednesday night. The elder Tarkanian remained sedated at the hospital this morning while doctors tried to determine what was behind his ailments. Tarkanian was inducted last year into the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. He took three schools to the NCAA tournament, but is best known for his teams at UNLV that made four Final Four appearances and won it all in 1990. He's also known for being a constant thorn in the side of the NCAA. They were constantly trying to suspend him and kick him out of college basketball, and Tarkanian continually took them to court and won stays of his execution. Eventually, he left UNLV and joined the San Antonio Spurs. That was, of course, before his longtime assistant, Greg Popovich, actually took over the Spurs and started winning. Tarkanian won 784 games over his career, 509 of them at UNLV. And I still think the year after they won the national championship in 1990, I thought they had a better team in 1991. They entered that tournament unbeaten. They made it to the Final Four, and they played Duke. And I still say that Final Four was rigged for Duke to win it because the NCAA did not want to see a school that they were constantly after, UNLV, and a coach that they were constantly at odds with, Jerry Tarkanian, winning a second consecutive national championship. They wanted a squeaky clean school in the Duke Blue Devils and Coach Mike Krzyzewski to beat a team that they thought was dirty, but they could never prove it. Jerry Tarkanian in a Las Vegas hospital. We hope he gets better. Continuing in college right now, Northwestern University appealed a decision by the National Labor Relations Board allowing the school's football team to form the first players union in college sports. Northwestern filed a, a brief yesterday with the full NLRB in Washington, saying in a news release that the initial ruling by Chicago NLRB Regional Director Peter Sung Orr ignored key evidence. The players group, known as the College Athletes Player Association, has until April 16th to file a brief in opposition to Northwestern's appeal, which had to be lodged by today, Thursday. Orr ruled March 26th that scholarship football players are employees because they are compensated and come under the university's control. His decision, along with recent lawsuits seeking to increase college player rights, had the potential to just blow up the business of college sports. Under the current broadcast contracts, the NCAA and the five most powerful conferences are guaranteed more than $31 billion per year. 
The players group is seeking to secure guaranteed coverage of sports-related medical expenses for current and former athletes, compensation for scholarships, a trust fund to help former players finish their degrees, and an increase in athletic scholarships. And quite frankly, I don't think the players are making outlandish demands. I think that is something that the universities should agree to. Northwestern's brief takes the position that the decision by the regional director improperly refused to apply the legal precedent established by the NLRB's 2004 decision in Brown University, in which the NLRB held that the graduate assistants were primarily students, not employees, the school said in its release. Well, obviously that's the case. Graduate assistants do not play. Graduate assistants are students. They are not employees. That's the difference between the two. These college athletes, the NCAA would like you to believe that they're student athletes. They're not. They're athletes first and students second. Or set April 25th for a vote by Northwestern players on whether they want to be represented by a union. A majority of the 76 football players eligible to vote would be needed to form the union. Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, said March 30th on CBS's Face the Nation, of course this is not unexpected, that the NLRB ruling eventually will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court and he thinks Orr made the wrong decision. I think it's heading to the Supreme Court. It'll be two or three years before that happens. And then look out, the entire college athletic scene could be blown to bits by the Supreme Court. Well, if you ask most of the major publications around the country that talk about actors and actresses, who's the hottest actor out there today? Probably nine publications out of ten would tell you that it's Ryan Gosling. And it's well known that this guy makes all the women going to the movies lightheaded. He's good-looking and known for his bad boy roles. Of course, he was in The Notebook, The Place in the Pines. He's been in several movies. Now it seems that that act is filtering down the college football at least to a point. Texas Tech football coach Cliff Kingsbury knows he looks a lot like Ryan Gosling. And if you don't believe me, Google Cliff Kingsbury, head coach of Texas Tech, and put his picture side by side with that of Ryan Gosling and tell me that those two guys don't look identical because they do. And Kingsbury knows it. So what does he do? He's going with it. In an interview Tuesday afternoon on ESPN Radio, Kingsbury admitted he uses his good looks to his advantage in recruiting, specifically with his recruits' mothers. The interview came just a few days before the Red Raiders will play their annual spring game this Saturday. And the highlight of the interview came when Kingsbury was asked if any of his recruits' single moms ever flirted with him while he was in the house on a recruiting trip. And the coach's response was as followed. Yeah, Kingsbury said. He started to giggle, and they said, you got to play to your strengths, so I kind of encourage it a little bit. It's part of the deal. Now, keep in mind, Kingsbury is 34 years old and a single guy. I'm sure some of these mothers would just love the opportunity to be hooked up with Cliff Kingsbury and take advantage of his multi-million dollar salary. The Texas Tech coach also says that he accepts being compared to Gosling, adding, hey, things could be worse. Another sad story to report on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show. Professional wrestling fans throughout the world were shocked and deeply saddened to learn of the passing of one of the most iconic WWE superstars ever, the Ultimate Warrior, on Tuesday. Warrior began his WWE career in 1987 and quickly went on to become one of the biggest stars in WWE history. Warrior became the WWE champion at WrestleMania 11, defeating Hulk Hogan in an epic encounter. Before his passing, Warrior had the opportunity to take his rightful place in the WWE Hall of Fame and was also able to appear at WrestleMania 30 on Sunday night and this past Monday Night Raw to address his legion of fans. 
Here's a portion of his acceptance speech into the Hall of Fame, thanking his many fans throughout the years. Ultimate Warrior is a legend, and the Ultimate Warrior fans, you are legendary. You waited all these years to speak your voice. You fought. I saw you fight over the years. I saw you fight back at all the anonymous ones who put forward all the, the lies and the mischaracterizations. They tried to reprogram your minds, rewrite history about a wonderful, exciting, fun memory of the ultimate warrior. And you fought back, and I'm here tonight because of you. It was hard to believe because of the circumstances that surrounded this entire weekend. It was WrestleMania 30 in which he made a cameo along with Hulk Hogan. Of course, as I said earlier, he had beaten Hulk Hogan for the WWE Heavyweight Championship back at WrestleMania 11. And then, of course, it had happened a couple of weeks earlier, the WWE Hall of Fame ceremonies in which he was finally inducted, but it was shown after Monday Night Raw on USA Network, and he even made a cameo at Monday Night Raw. So then for him to just suddenly pass away sometime Tuesday, and they still have not come out with the and disclosed what the cause of death was as far as yet, and probably after the autopsy, it will take a few months. But nonetheless, just the circumstances surrounding his death were rather strange, and hopefully within the next two or three weeks we'll be able to find out more about what happened to the Ultimate Warrior. But now what we want to do tonight is bring in Greg Mitchell, who is our resident wrestling expert as far as the WWE and any other wrestling entity is concerned. Greg, we know you're short on time tonight. Thanks for joining us. But I wanted to ask you about your thoughts and just what was going through your mind as you found out that the Ultimate Warrior earlier this week had passed away after what had gone on with WrestleMania and Raw earlier this weekend. Well, uh, great to be on the show, and unfortunately under such, uh, you know, unfortunate circumstances. But uh, I think what went through my mind was very similar to that of many other pro wrestling fans. Uh, you know, it was a, a lot of the, what? Really? We just saw him. Uh, because it was uh, literally hours after he had just appeared on Monday Night Raw. Um, it was quite the quite the ordeal that, that that had taken place, and um, you know, I think most people still are are just trying to uh, trying to get used to the fact that the guy they saw alive and accepting a, a WWE Hall of Fame um, induction over the weekend is actually no longer living. It's a crazy turn of events. Greg, you know, back in that period of time in the early '80s, it was Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Andre the Giant. And you had to mention in the same breath with those three, the Ultimate Warrior, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in in many respects, the WWF had had built built up uh, quite the beast in the Ultimate Warrior. That uh, Hulk Hogan really was passing the torch to the to the new young up and comer in the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania six uh, when they fought for. The, uh, the WWF championship where Hogan was defeated. So, um, it was definitely, um, a major turning point for the WWF and, uh, a huge, um, I guess, bout of, or, or bout of faith within, uh, the WWF that Vince McMahon and the rest of the creative team thought that he was that, at that same caliber as a, a macho man, Randy Savage, or a Hulk Hogan. That, it says a lot to be in that type of uh, in that type of caliber. Greg, wasn't there some sort of controversy that that led to the Warrior leaving the WWF at the time, now WWE, and then ultimately uh, re-engaging with Vince McMahon and coming back into the fold somewhat? 
Well, yeah, I mean, he went back and forth. Uh, he had several bouts with the with the WWF uh, ongoing in the, in the early to mid 1990s. Uh, the the biggest issue though was the mistake that he made. Um, he, I think he got caught up in his own hype to the point where uh, before uh, SummerSlam in uh, the early 90s, uh, he he demanded he was in contract negotiations with the with the WWF for a re-up, and he uh, basically sent a letter to Vince McMahon and demanded five hundred and fifty thousand dollars to appear on the next WrestleMania uh, to get full-fledged control over all of his merchandise and and to get all those proceeds, Uh, or he wouldn't show up at uh, the next SummerSlam, which they had already started to promote. They had already put him on at the card and built up the storylines. And uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, I think he unfortunately bit the hand that fed him and uh, shortly after he, you know, Vince, it's funny. Vince McMahon sent uh, sent him a letter and said, "Oh yeah, you're my you're my friend, you're my colleague. I I appreciate <laughs> you so much. We'll we'll entertain all of these offers and we'll definitely work with you. You'll receive all the money and and everything that you've asked for." And then uh, shortly after that, they fired him. Uh, <laughs> and you just don't. Uh, you don't demand something like that. You don't make threats. Uh, it's not uh, it's not good business practice to do things like that. So they they went ahead and released him. Well, they put him on uh, in indefinite suspension, and then ultimately they, the two sides could not come to an agreement. So they they did release the Ultimate Warrior. But uh, you know things like that. It just leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. There was never a, a good relationship. Uh, you know, he, he came back in 1992 and then later on came back again to the WWF in 1996. Uh, but it was just never the same. Um, so it's, uh, it's a sad turn of events for someone that they really put a lot of faith and uh, honestly a lot of dollars into to, to build up, like I mentioned earlier, this beast and the ultimate warrior. Uh, but he definitely, was touted as the as the um, successor to Hulk Hogan, but never really amounted to that. Greg, just one final question about the Ultimate Warrior. It has to be some solace to the fans and those who followed his career that just before his death he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, as in many of these types of stories, um, you know, the Bret Hart situation... Uh, anytime the WWE can kind of rekindle uh, those infamous relationships that were so famous but yet so detrimental at the same time, anytime you can kind of put closure to that and both sides kind of hug it out, so to speak, it's a really good uh, a really good story for the fans. They love to see that and to see him back in a WWE ring again. Um, that's a that says a lot to uh, where what the caliber of a company like WWE is, the caliber of a person like Vince McMahon is, um, and I, I think it really meant a lot to not only the fans but but really to uh, Brian Helwig, who's that's uh, just in case anybody listening isn't aware, Brian Helwig is the Ultimate Warrior's birth name. Uh, he later changed it to to Brian Warrior, and later just went by Warrior. So. Uh, that's, that, it's a good, good story. Uh, unfortunately it ended for, for him in a, in a very bad way with his mysterious death. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, I hope we find out soon what, what really happened to him, uh, because he has a wife and two daughters that would really like to know. Greg, thanks for joining us tonight, giving us your recollections of the ultimate warrior, Brian Helwig. All right. Thank you. Greg Mitchell, our resident expert on wrestling here at Ultimate Sports Talk, also the owner of UltimateSportsTalk.com, talking about the the life and the passing of the Ultimate Warrior for the WWF at the time, now WWE. And this may seem like a very strange segue, but we're going to go from professional wrestling into the Masters Golf Tournament, which began earlier today. 
minus one very big golfer, and that golfer being Tiger Woods. We'll get into that in just a second. But the first round has just been completed at the 2014 Masters at Augusta National Golf Club down in Georgia. And the leader after the first round, Bill Haas, with a minus four, four shots under par. My pick to win the tournament again for the second straight year would be Adam Scott. He is in second place, tied with Bubba Watson and Louis Astazian. They're all at three under. And then there is a six-way tie for third place. K.J. Choi, Jimmy Walker, Kevin Stadler, Brant Schnedeker, Jonas Bilkst, and Marcus Leishman are all at two under. Now, what's going on with Phil Mickelson, you ask? Well, he is at at plus three, three over par. He had a triple bogey on the seventh green, and he may have hurt his back. So he may or may not be able to continue playing in this Masters tournament. But, of course, as I said, there is no Tiger at the Masters this year. Justin Gutcher and Robert Lesenwich look at the tournament without Tiger Woods in it, who's out with that back surgery that happened just three weeks ago. No Tiger Woods. And for you, this is a whole new story. It absolutely is. 1996 was my first Masters, and obviously he's been here every time since. And no Tiger, it's palpable. There's a different buzz in the air. But having said that, the great thing about this tournament is, no matter if Tiger's the story at the beginning of the week, at the end of the week, the story is the winner and the finish. It's always good. What is it about these transcendent figures that people are just so drawn to? I think it's that you don't have to be a fan of the sport. You didn't have to be a fan of boxing to appreciate Ali. You wanted to see Jordan, even if you didn't like basketball, Gretzky and hockey. These are figures that come along maybe once in a lifetime, maybe once in a century. I think ultimately what we're drawn to is greatness. And greatness we will see here in Augusta. It always happens at the Masters. Forty years ago this week, Hank Aaron hit his 715th career home run. It moved him past Babe Ruth and into first place on the all-time Major League Baseball home run list. I remember the night that that happened. I remember the situation that Henry Aaron had to go through, and I remember the grace and the dignity that he showed while he was doing the most, what many people thought at the time, breaking the most impossible record there was in baseball history. It might be the most famous highlight in Major League Baseball history. That legendary home run, as I said, didn't come without some controversy. Braves management wanted Aaron to break the record at home, but they opened the season with three games in Cincinnati. The team planned to sit Henry Aaron for three games, but Commissioner Bowie Kuhn ruled he had to play in at least two of them at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. Aaron, who was then 40 years old, tied Ruth's record with his 714th career homer in his very first at-bat of the season, which was opening day in Cincinnati. He went the entire off-season, keep this in mind, the entire off-season with 713 home runs. He was one shy of tying the Babes record through the entire five-month off-season. He went through training camp one home run away. There was the stigma of the Braves wanting him to sit out the first three games. And Bowie Kuhn back then ruled that, nope, he's going to play in at least two of them. And then on his very first appearance off Jack Billingham of the Cincinnati Reds, Babe Ruth, his record was tied by Hank Aaron. He then went 0 for 5 with a walk and two strikeouts the rest of the series against the Reds. And then on his first at-bat, on his first home game of the 1974 season in Atlanta, Aaron broke the record with a solo shot off left-hander Al Downing of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who himself had a long and excellent career. The Braves announcer at the time, Milo Hamilton, called the historic shot. He's sitting on 7-14. The pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7 15. 
It was amazing. Now, that was the radio play-by-play for Atlanta. There was also something back then called Monday Night Baseball. And it was on NBC at the time, because NBC had the rights to all Major League Baseball games. There was no splitting it up amongst TV networks back then. NBC had it. And Vince Scully actually had the TV call of it. And as you can imagine, it was a lot calmer and a little more quieter on NBC. Aaron received death threats for months leading up to the record-breaking Homer. Newspapers reportedly prepared obituaries in case Aaron was murdered in the days leading up to or just after breaking the record. And people weren't kidding. The KKK was out to get Henry Aaron at that time. But he also received a lot of support from not only the fans, but the media alike. Aaron finished that 1974 season with 20 homers, his lowest total since his rookie season in 1954. He played two more years and retired with 755 career home runs, a record that stood until Barry Bonds hit his 756th career homer in the year of 2007. Ruth's record stood for 39 years after he retired. Believe it or not, Aaron only led the league in homers four times in his 23-year career. His career high was 47 homers in 1971. But he did hit 40-plus homers eight times. From 1957 through 1973, only twice did Aaron fail to hit 30-plus homers. The man was as consistent as they come, And the reason that they said he was able to hit so many homers was he had such quick wrists that snapped through the strike zone when he swung the bat. On Tuesday night, the Braves held a ceremony on the anniversary of Aaron hitting his historic 715th career home run. It wasn't in old Fulton County Stadium. It was in the new Braves Stadium, just up the street from the old one. Aaron, as always, was thankful to all those people who helped him along the way, including the fans. Forty years ago, Dusty, if I'd have known that this was going to happen this way, I would have hit the home run earlier, probably. I just want to say thank you so very much for all your kindness. The game of baseball was a way that I relaxed myself each year that I went on the field for 23 years. I gave baseball everything that I had. Everything, every ounce of my ability to play the game, I tried to play to make you, the fans, appreciate me more. Well, they definitely did that. As you can tell, Aaron is not his spry old self that he used to be when he broke this record. He turned 80 years old back in February. He was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame on the first ballot in 1982, receiving 97.8% of the vote. That's the sixth highest percentage in baseball history and was the second highest at the time, trailing only Ty Cobb. This is the week that Henry Aaron broke Babe Ruth's home run record in Major League Baseball. That's the good news this evening, and the bad news in Major League Baseball is for the Los Angeles Angels, as the team announced yesterday that outfielder Josh Hamilton is set for thumb surgery and will likely be sidelined for the next six to eight weeks. Hamilton injured his left thumb while sliding headfirst into first base on Tuesday night against the Mariners, and a subsequent MRI revealed a torn ligament. The surgery will be performed in the coming days in Los Angeles. The Angels have thus placed Hamilton on the 15-day DL. Hamilton, age 32, was off to a hot start in 2014 as he was batting 444 with two homers and two doubles in eight games. And he's in the second year of a five-year, $133 million contract. He is starting to look like the player that the Angels actually signed two years ago away from the Texas Rangers. Well, let's take this opportunity tonight in Major League Baseball to take a look at the scores from earlier this afternoon and the standings, which we always used to do in the old 
BBA Baseball Talk on Thursday nights, which has turned into the ultimate sports talk. This afternoon, the Oakland A's beat the Minnesota Twins up in the Twin Cities 6-1. to And the Pittsburgh Pirates came back this afternoon to defeat the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field by a final score of 5-4. to So let's take a quick look at the standings in both the American and National League. And let's start out in the AL Central, where the Detroit Tigers are leading the Cleveland Indians by a full game. The Tigers 5-2, and two, Cleveland 5-4. and four. Then comes the American League East, where Toronto is leading the American League East by a half a game over Tampa Bay and a full game over the next three, Baltimore, Boston, and the New York Yankees. In the American League West, it's the Oakland A's, two-time defending champions, they are 6-3 and three and leading the division over Seattle by a half a game with a 6-5 and five mark. In the National League, on the National League Eastern Division, the Washington Nationals lead the division with a 6-2 and two mark. They're one game over those Atlanta Braves that we were talking about earlier. Then comes the National League Central, where Milwaukee is on top. Of course, Ryan Braun coming back from that. 65-game suspension a year ago, hit three home runs yesterday in Boston, and that's been propelling the Brewers into first place in the Central. They lead by a half a game over Pittsburgh, who are 6-3, and three, and a game and a half over the St. Louis Cardinals, who are 5-4. and four. Cincinnati mired in last place in that division with a 3-6 and six mark. And in the National League West, it's the San Francisco Giants, they're back out in front of the West after an off year a year ago, 6-3 and three on the season. They lead the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are in second place by a half a game, 6-4. and four. And then Colorado is 5-5, five and five, and they are in third, just a game and a half behind the San Francisco Giants. And that's a look at the standings in Major League Baseball for tonight. Do you realize we are one month away, one month from tonight, when the NFL draft will enter the scene? Finally, after four months from the Super Bowl being played, we are finally going to have the NFL draft of college football players. No more talk about Johnny Manziel, Blake Bortles, Teddy Bridgewater. Who's the best quarterback? Who's going to be the number one pick? Is it going to be Bridgewater? Is it going to be Manziel? Is it going to be Khalil Mack out of out of Buffalo? The all-Mack and all-American linebacker. Is Sammy Watkins the best wide receiver that we have out there right now? There's going to be a lot of discussions here in the next month. There's going to be a lot more tryouts, and there's going to be a lot going on. But I can tell you one thing and one thing here tonight I hope the Cleveland Browns do not draft Johnny Manziel. I am so tired of all the talk out of the two competing sports radio stations in Cleveland continually hashing and rehashing this argument again and again and again about whether to take Johnny Manziel or if it's a complete and utter failure that they take whom I think is the best player in the draft right now and the most obvious pick, Sammy Watkins, for the Cleveland Browns. I don't think Watkins is the overall number one pick. Definitely not the consensus pick. Whomever the Houston Texans think that they need to take, which I think it makes the most sense that the Texans actually take Johnny Manziel. Do I think he's the number one pick in the draft? Absolutely not. I don't think this guy's going to be but an average quarterback in the NFL. I don't think the three that they talk about, Bortles, Bridgewater, or Manziel, are going to be all pros at the NFL level. I don't think it's going to happen at all. I think the best player coming into the league out of this draft is going to be Sammy Watkins, and I think the second best player may be Khalil Mack out of Buffalo, and Greg Robinson, the tackle coming into the league, I think is going to be the third best player, and all three may end up being... Hall of Fame players. And right now, I'll, I'll tell you my agenda on the Cleveland Browns as we move into this. I think the Browns, with their fourth pick, the 26th pick, and the 32nd pick in the draft, 
Matter of fact, they've got five picks in the first three rounds, ten picks overall. But when you look primarily at the first three picks that the Cleveland Browns have, at number four, I think the best pick that they could make, and I think he'll be there when the Browns draft, will be Sammy Watkins out of Clemson. The man put on a show against the Cleveland, the Ohio State Buckeyes in the bowl game this past New Year's season. He is by far, I think, the best of a great crop of wide receivers that are available out there. So then what do the Browns do with the 26th pick? Originally, I actually wanted them to try to go after Carlos Hyde. That is the player that I wanted the Browns to go after, the running back from Ohio State. I think he would fit very well in the situation that the Browns are in. They've got Ben Tate. They've got Deion Lewis. And I think they're going to need a third running back. And I think he fits that bill. Now, if they don't go after him, I think they're going to probably need to go after either a quarterback or a linebacker. The quarterback I would really like to see this team draft, if I had my druthers, I like A.J. McCarron. McCarron, by far, I think, is the best winning quarterback that is available out there in the college ranks today. You can't argue with this kid's DNA as far as winning is concerned. He won two national championships at Alabama. He won three SEC championships as quarterback of the Crimson Tide. He has played under a professional coach in Nick Saban. He has played behind a great offensive line. Yes. He's played in front of great running backs. Yes. He's always had a good defense. Yes. But the fact is that A.J. McCarron did nothing to cause his team to lose games. And as a matter of fact, in most of those games, especially the national championship games, you could actually say that it was because of A.J. McCarron that the Alabama Crimson Tide won national championships. But now, because of recent events that have happened over the last couple of days to the Cleveland Browns, they may have to look in a different area for their draft. They may have to look at the center position because the Jacksonville Jaguars and Restricted free agent center Alex Mack have agreed in principle on a five-year deal and an offer sheet that could be signed by tomorrow. The sides have discussed multiple structures for a five-year deal, any of which would make Mack the highest-paid center in the NFL. The Browns gave Mack the transition tag, which came with an offer of $10 million for this upcoming season. They could only sign him for one year. Mack has yet to sign that tag, and the Browns can match any offer sheet from another team. The Browns and Max representatives have tried to reach agreement on a long-term deal, but have been unable to do so. The source said Mac is wary of how the Browns have conducted business in the recent years, with their firing of former coach Rob Chudzinski after one year, and the front office shuffle that ensued serving as a discouraging end to Mac's fifth season in Cleveland. CBS Sports' Jason Lockenfora explains the situation that Mac has with the Cleveland Browns. Talk to several people around the league, people who don't have a dog in this fight. Just pick their brains about, could you structure a deal that the Browns couldn't match, even with all their cap space, even with an owner who says he's committed to spending big cash to keep Mac? I very much believe that there is a possibility, and I believe the Jacksonville Jaguars could be just the team to do it. Mac visited them over the weekend. Their interest in him, I hear, is very real. He's had a very good visit there, and if he determines that's the team he wants to move forward with, because remember, you can only file one of these offer sheets, then we could have the possibility of him signing what I believe would be a short-term offer sheet, maybe two years, maybe a three-year deal that automatically voids the two, that would pay him a very high uh, salary, including roster bonuses, uh, base salary, year one salary, year two salary, all combined, that would be probably north of $25 million. I believe it could be structured in a way, after talking to these various contract experts, whereby in the second year, 2015, there's a massive roster bonus, let's say $15 million, through the fifth day of the league year. Do the Browns really want to go into a situation where they just get Mac for two years? They know he doesn't want to be there. They pay him 25 or $26 million bucks for two years, and then they can't franchise him because to franchise him off that second-year salary, you're talking uh, if he gets a $15 million roster bonus and a $1 million base, let's say $16 million, 
You'd have to give him $19.2 million the year after that just to keep him. They know he doesn't want to be there again. If he did, he would have signed his $10 million tender. He wants to come up with something creative that they can't match. My problem with Mac is that he has made such a scuttle about wanting to leave the Browns. Now, I heard media reports this morning state that that was all a negotiating ploy. But Hawkins didn't do that when he was leaving Cincinnati. He didn't tell the Bengals that he wanted to play in Cleveland. Mack has gone out of his way to tell the Browns he wants out of Cleveland. Yet, Browns owner Jimmy, Jimmy Haslam indicated to reporters on Tuesday that he expected to match any offer Jacksonville or another team would make. Mack surely understands that that's a possibility. But I think the Browns should just let this guy go. I think paying him anywhere from around $9 million and up is too much to pay an NFL center. I heard a lot of reports today that Mike Webster, Matt Burke were two stalwart centers. Well, really, the only reason you would remember Manny Ramirez's name on Denver's offensive line is the fact that he snapped the ball over Peyton Manning's head at the beginning of the Super Bowl. Are centers important? Yes. But they don't need to be the highest paid athlete on your team. And that's what Alex Mack will be on Jacksonville. I don't want him to be that on the Cleveland Browns. I think it's time they take John Greco outside and say, John, guard is no longer your position. You are now the center for the next couple of years. Let's snap the ball. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick is named as a suspect in a suspicious incident in a report filed last week by the Miami Police Department. Quentin Patton, a 49ers wide receiver, and Seattle Seahawks wide receiver Ricardo Lockett, a close friend of Kaepernick, were also named as suspects in this report. The alleged victim reported to police that on April 1st at approximately 9 p.m. she visited Lockett's apartment. Kaepernick and Patton were also there. She said she mixed drinks and prepared shots for them and was told that in order to drink the shots, she had to hit the bong, which contained marijuana, according to the report. She said to police that she began to feel lightheaded and went to the bathroom to lie down. Kaepernick, with whom she said she had a previous personal relationship, followed her into the bathroom. They did not have sex, she told police. Shortly thereafter, the alleged victim said she could not remember anything else that happened. Miami police state that the investigation will be continuing. And the 49ers will do some traveling during the exhibition season with a trip to Baltimore for a Harbaugh versus Harbaugh exhibition opener on August 7th. Also opening the exhibition season with a cross-country trip, the 49ers are scheduled to play host to the Denver Broncos at a date to be determined in the first American football game staged at Santa Clara Stadium. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our guest here this evening and also for producing the show, giving us his memories and thoughts of the ultimate warrior who passed away earlier this week. But our thanks most of all to you for listening. Don't forget, coming up on Monday night, Mark Donahue and I will have the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show and we will be speaking to you about the ongoing controversy of Chief Wahoo and the Cleveland Indians. Should it remain, or should it be abolished? But, of course, that music means it's time for us to go for this Thursday night. Thanks for joining us, everyone. You are the ones that make this show possible. You are the ones that make this show continue. I'm Dave Mitchell. We'll talk to you again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Until then... Have a good weekend, everyone. Enjoy the Masters, enjoy the weather, and just enjoy life. Good night, everybody.